Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. Hey. So we've got a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it because we've got an eight o'clock tip-off tonight where the calves will redeem themselves, I believe. Right, Josh? Okay, we can say a prayer for that. Um, For those of you that have not been with us, we will be uh, continuing our study in the book of Hosea this evening. I'm just going to go ahead and dive into chapter 4 and read this entire chapter to you. Now, this is a poetic text. We are transitioning from the introductory chapters of this book that has set the framework for us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but try to stick with it as this uh, prophetic poetry is being read to you. This is Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Hear the Lord's word, people of Israel, for the Lord has a dispute with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithful love or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, murder, together with stealing and adultery are common. Bloody crime followed by bloody crime. Therefore, the earth itself becomes sick and all who live on it grow weak, together with the wild animals and the birds in the sky, even the fish of the sea are dying. Yet let no one protest and let no one complain. Listen, priest, I am angry with your people. You will stumble by day and at nighttime, so will your prophet, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Since you have rejected knowledge, so I will reject you from serving me as a priest. Since you have forgotten the instruction of your God, so also I will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They set their hearts on evil things. The priest will be just like the people. I will punish them for their ways and judge them for their deeds. They will eat, but not be satisfied. They will have sex like prostitutes, but they will not have children because they have rejected the Lord to devote themselves to false religious practices. Wine and new wine destroy understanding. My people take advice from a piece of wood and their divining rod gives them predictions. A spirit of prostitution has led them astray. They have left God to follow other gods. They offer sacrifices on mountaintops and make entirely burned offerings on hills. They offer sacrifices under various green trees because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters act like prostitutes and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters because they act like prostitutes, nor your daughters-in-law because they commit adultery. For the men themselves visit prostitutes and offer sacrifices with consecrated workers at temples. So now the people without sense must come to ruin. Israel, even though you act like a prostitute, don't let Judah become guilty. 
Don't enter into Gilgal or go up to Bethaven and don't swear as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn cow, Israel is stubborn. Now the Lord will tend them as the Lord tends a lamb in a pasture. Ephraim is associated with idols. Let him alone. Though they have stopped drinking, they continue to behave like prostitutes. Indeed, they love. Shame is their pride. The wind has wrapped her in its wings. They will be ashamed of their sacrifices. The word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for how it instructs and how it challenges and how it um, convicts. God, as we attempt to make sense of this ancient text, may you give us wisdom, may you give us insight through your spirit, may you bring about illumination, may we uh, make application to our lives. God, as you addressed your people way back in the 8th century, may you address us again here and now this evening. God, we pray these things humbly in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to date myself a bit now. But back when I was in middle school, a mixtape was the way to profess your undying love to the person that you were attempting to go on a date with. A mixtape is an art form because you would spend hours, Brian, going over your collection of cassette tapes to figure out which would be the most important track to open this mixtape. You were trying to set uh, something of a trajectory for where you were going to go. And you didn't want to start out too fast and too loud. You didn't want to start off too soft and put people to sleep. You didn't want to, you didn't want to overstep. You just wanted to begin and then enter into this progression of confessing your love to the person that you were sending this tape to. Now, you can make a bad analogy, as I'm doing right now, to the way that scriptures are written and recorded, because in this text, at least in the book of Hosea, we have something of a mixtape because there was a redactor who was uh, entrusted with these oracles, these stories about Hosea and his family, and also these words that Hosea was speaking to the people at the time. And this redactor was attempting to make sense of all of these different texts and to arrange them in a certain way that would convey a certain point to the people. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is this introductory passage in chapters one through three is something that has set the tone or the trajectory of this book. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says, the redactor of Hosea's book summarized the prophet's message for us by collecting together the material in chapters one through three and placing it at the beginning of the work. You could think of this as, this is real fancy terms here, the hermeneutical trajectory for this this prophetic letter for this text that we now have. The way that you are reading is through the lens of this story of Hosea and his wife Gomer and their children and their scorned love between a husband and a wife and how this is meant to symbolically demonstrate Israel and God. She continues, the redactor's intention with such a collection was that we read chapters 4 through 14, which we have just begun this evening, in the light of that introductory summary. As we have gone into what is called a prophetic oracle, this is when Hosea says, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord's word says. He's, he's going to the people and he's speaking this, either an oracle of doom or an oracle of hope. He's speaking to the people, attempting to right the wrongs 
And Elizabeth Ochtemeyer is saying we have to now see that in light of the story that we have heard over the last few weeks. So just as a way of rehashing, the story of Hosea is one of a prophet who is called by God to go and to marry a woman of harlotry or a woman of whoredom. Perhaps even some translations would say a prostitute, although I think that that misses the point because in our cultural moment, that term has so much baggage along with it. And Hosea is going to, to marry this woman as a sign of what the relationship between God and his people is like. Beyond that, in chapter one, he is also called to have children with this woman, with Gomer. And these three children have symbolic names. These names are Jezreel, which we don't really have a lot of identification with, but this was a place of a bloody battle in the Old Testament. This would be similar to naming a child today Hiroshima or Auschwitz. This was something that was uh, indicative of a mass atrocity, and to name a child that in this moment would be outlandish. Not only do they have Jezreel at the family table, they also have a little girl named Not Pitied or Not Compassioned. Not a great name if you're going to set the tone for this uh, life of success for a young girl. We also finally have another young boy named Not My People. Hosea, with his wife Gomer, is setting a symbolic um, sign act for the people to see and to feel and to enter in to how God is experiencing the relationship that he has with Israel. They are faithless. They have left him high and dry. They have gone after foreign gods, perhaps even prostituting themselves in the, in the, in the process. And this is how Hosea is living this out. In chapter two, we have a really graphic poem about how God is, is um, feeling this connection with his people. It's a difficult passage. And then in chapter three, we go back to Hosea and Gomer, and we learn that at some point in their marriage, for un, uh, reasons unbeknownst to us, us, Gomer leaves that marital situation and goes after other lovers. And Hosea goes and brings her back home. I've had some really great conversations with people over the last couple of weeks as to what is going on with that and what Gomer must have been feeling and why she left and what were the reasons behind that. And at the end of the day, we just do not know. We also don't know Hosea's mindset. If he goes back to, to buy her back and to bring her home, if he is, is wanting to rekindle that love or if he's just going because God is commanding him, we don't know about the feelings and the emotions involved in this marital relationship, but we do know that underlying all of this is that sign act that God is relentless in his love for his people. And no matter how hard we turn away and go from him, he will come after us in love, hoping to reconcile and bring about restoration. This is the story of Hosea and Gomer through which we have to see even these prophetic oracles in chapters four through 14. There's also a story though of the book of Hosea and I just wanna hint at this. I'm gonna go ahead and warn you tonight. We got 56 slides. We've got a lot of nerd stuff happening. I have to apologize because I just got knee deep into it and then I got waist deep into it and then we just went all the way under. That's what happened. 
So I'm going to try to make good on that. But the story of the book of Hosea and how we have it, it seems as though Hosea was prophesying right up until the point when Israel in the north was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. You remember the Assyrian Empire, those siege engines and the war machine that was creating all sorts of havoc in the ancient world. They were threatening to destroy Israel. And right before this happens, Hosea, for some reason, stops prophesying. And we have these these oracles and we have these prophecies of him up until this point, but there's traces throughout this book. And this is really cool nerd stuff. There's traces throughout this book that give us, give us some proof or give us some evidence that other hands were in this book much later hands from Judah in the South hands that were saying, you know, these oracles up here in the North that was addressing an issue that happened a long time ago, they're still important for us and we can still learn something of it today. And we've seen how this Actor, this person, this editor, this mixtape author who wants to start out with maybe a little bit of this and then get into a little bit of that. Like we've seen how this person is crafting this thing, but the story of the book of Hosea, it doesn't have a beautiful past. In fact, one scholar says, with the possible exception of the book of Job, the book of Hosea has the dubious distinction of having the most obscure passages of the entire Hebrew Bible. I read all this stuff after we decided to study Hosea. I said, you know, this is going to be great. There's some really cool stories. It's going to be difficult. And I started reading all of these, these commentaries and commentators saying, you know what? This is one of the most difficult books of the entire Bible. And he goes on to say, not only is it difficult because of the content, he says the text, the Hebrew text is traditionally regarded as the most corrupt and poorly preserved of the Hebrew Bible. And that's something that you guys probably don't think about. Because you have your leather-bound NIVs and you just go for it. And you're like, this is great. You know, God's word preserved. And you know, there's no problems here whatsoever. Except when you look at the bottom of your Old Testament, it says, has little footnotes. It says, Hebrew uncertain, Hebrew uncertain, Hebrew uncertain. You're like, what? What? And there's, there's things that you have to deal with in the text to figure out what's going on. It's not just what the words mean, but it's also when the, the song is over, if we're going to carry out this mixtape metaphor, because Hosea is prophesying and he doesn't give a lot of telltale signs that we see in the Old Testament prophetic literature, such as thus saith the Lord. And then you have a natural break. He just kind of starts talking. And nobody really knows when he stops a certain oracle and when he starts a new one. It's just a lot of mixed up stuff. And tonight, we're going to kind of get into some of that uh, this evening, but I don't want to bombard you with those sorts of issues. Although I do think that this is really important stuff to think through as a community who is um, one who loves the word of God, treats it with respect, gives it authority. It's important for us to know what we actually have in our hands and the story behind it. One of the early church fathers named Jerome, he says this about uh, Hosea, and then I'll move on to something else. He says, if in the interpretation of all the prophets, we stand in need of the intervention of the Holy Spirit, how much more should the Lord be invoked in interpreting Hosea? All that to say, we're going to find some difficulties in this book as we study it together. 
I think that there are three different sections in this passage tonight that we can kind of break down. The first is this dispute of Yahweh. In Hebrew, this is called the reeve of Yahweh, this, uh, this court accusation. This is a legal metaphor where it seems as though God is taking Israel into a legal sort of setting. This is the dispute of God, and we can, we can glean some things from this text and maybe even apply that to our lives this evening. This is Hosea chapter 4. It says, Hear the Lord's word, people of Israel, for the Lord has a dispute, has an accusation, has um, a, a plea against the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithful love or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. There's no emet, there's no chesed, and there's no da'at Elohim. There is no faithfulness. There is no devotion. There is no loyalty amongst these people with regard to the relationship that I have with them. They will not even uh, look the other way with regard to going in the opposite direction. That's not a saying. That doesn't really make sense. It won't take them very long to do God dirty is what I'm trying to say. There's no sort of, of devotion or faithfulness of the people. There's also no chesed. Now let's get guttural here. Go back deep in the back of your throat and go chesed. I told you it feels nice, doesn't it? I've told you this before. If you want to really emphasize, get a glass of milk. You can really get back in there. Chesed. This is a, a term that struggles to have a translation. It's like covenant love, steadfast love, the way that you show yourself to be true within a covenant relationship. And God is saying there is no chesed from these people. They're not committed to me. They're not showing their love to me. They're not showing their steadfastness to me. And beyond that, there's no knowledge of me amongst the people. Now, in our enlightened 21st century American context, we usually think of knowledge as we go to the library and we read books and we amass all of this intellectual stuff. This is not what this passage is talking about. In the Hebrew language, the da'at Elohim, it's more of an acknowledgement of God. It's not just knowing things about God, but it's actually having those things inform who you are and living in light of them. And God's saying there is no truthfulness, there is no faithfulness, there is no devotion, there is no committed love, there is no covenant with these people, and there is no knowledge, there is no acknowledgement, there is no one here who is living in light of who I am. I am and what I have done for them. This is a terrible way to read the Bible, but could we not just stop there and think about our own lives and our own community for a moment and wonder if we fall under these categories, especially in our enlightened and very nerdy and very heady. We privilege knowledge of God. We love books. We love background and context and anything that starts with ancient Near Eastern, whatever. Like that seems to be something. Now, I've, I've really thrown you guys into the mix here. I really should just say that seems to be something that I enjoy and you guys sit through on a weekly basis. So I don't know if that's the case, but do we actually allow that to inform who we are and live in light of it? Really brief example here in the story of the Good Samaritan. 
You've got someone who is beaten up on the side of the road, someone who needs help. And the first few people that pass by, the Levite and the priest, they have the knowledge. They know what they're supposed to do. They know what's expected of them, yet they do nothing. And in a sense, that knowledge that they have is worthless in the moment because they do not act upon the knowledge that they have. Whereas the Samaritan steps in to love and to demonstrate that love in an action towards his fellow human being. Knowing things, reading books, celebrating knowledge is not enough unless that fuels who you are and the way that you live your life. It continues. They're not doing these things. They don't have faithfulness and covenant love or steadfast love, and they don't have a knowledge of God. Instead, what they are doing, you could think of it, their sins of omission are not having these things. The sins that they are actually committing are they're swearing, they're lying, they're murdering. Uh, side note here, don't think swearing is just they stub their toe and they say a choice four-letter word. This is not what we're, what we're talking about here, although that's not the most holy of, of ways I should just remember that as I'm walking my dog around the development at two in the morning, swearing, lying, murder together with stealing and adultery. The author is going back to look at some of these uh, prohibitions in the 10 commandments. They're saying these things are common and bloody crime is followed by bloody crime. A good way of thinking about this is social ethics and theological orthodoxy are inextricably interdependent. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, let me explain what you just amened. The things that you do and the things that you believe have to be in concert with one another. If you are believing the right things and not doing anything about it, you are missing a vital point of your faith. If you are doing all of the right things and not thinking the right things, you too are missing a vital component of your faith. And what Hosea is trying to get across here and what God is trying to get across these people is you can't just know this stuff. You have to do it and vice versa. The things that you do for your fellow human, your social ethics and your theological orthodoxy, they have to go together. This is a theme throughout the prophetic canon. In in Isaiah chapter one, he says, get your sacrifice out of my face. Get your songs out of my face. Stop coming into this temple if you're going to be a person of injustice. If you want to come in here and have it mean anything, then when you go out there, you better treat your fellow human being like a fellow human being created in the image of God. You can't just come in here and raise your hand and sing some songs and take communion. Everything be okay when you go out and you act like a butt to all the people in your sphere of influence. That's scriptural. I don't know where it is, but it's got to be in there somewhere. We have to live consistent lives that demonstrate the things that we believe and how we live that out, or we are missing a massive part of our faith. In this, this first bit, in this first little point here, he says, therefore the earth, because you guys don't have this commitment, you're not devoted, you don't have steadfast love, you aren't committed to me in the covenant, you don't have a knowledge of me that manifests in any way, shape, or form in a way that I, I want it to. Instead, you're swearing, you're lying, you're killing, you're committing adultery, you're uh, thieving, all of this stuff. As a result, therefore the earth itself becomes sick and all who live on it grow weak together with the wild animals and the birds in the sky, even the fish of the are dying. In other words, what the prophet is saying here is your commitments and your actions have consequences that go well beyond just the people that you are interacting with. Your sinfulness, if you will, is killing 
the cosmos. This is a massive claim that God is making to these people. Israel, this is not just about you. We have this covenant relationship and you're supposed to be caretakers of this world and you are not owning up to your side of the agreement. Now, I do want to at least pause here and say that when we think that our sinfulness only affects us, we are sorely mistaken. Do not miss the grace that we have that is through Jesus Christ. You are forgiven and you should not live in light of guilt or shame. However, do not buy into the lie that the things that you do only affect you. In the second point, this this transition here, we've seen this dispute of Yahweh against the people, but he gets even more pointed. He says, there's a dispute of Yahweh against the priests. It says in verse four, and this is one of the most debated verses in this entire chapter, if not in the entire book of Hosea, not many people know what's going on. Remember that corrupted text, the thing that we have received, it's got difficulties in it. The common English Bible, which we read tonight says, yet let no one protest and no one complain. Listen, priest, I'm angry with your people. Hear the tone there. This is God saying to his religious leaders, listen, priests, get your ears turned up here, religious leader. The thing that you're doing is jacked up. The NIV translates this in a different way. It says, but let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. Catch the difference. In one translation, it's, listen, priest, I'm talking to you. And in another translation, it actually says, your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. Now, I don't want to develop this tonight. I just want to let this kind of sit and simmer and kind of inundate your thoughts. And if you want to sit and have coffee with me and talk about the Bible and how it's translated and the differences between these texts, I would love to do that. Before we get there, the Bible that we have is trustworthy You can hear the story of redemption in it, but there are at times differences between translations that are based on their interpretation of the text that lead you into very different readings. Again, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says the NIV has obscured this meaning that God is speaking specifically to the priests by mistranslating verse 4. And they do it in this way, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. Let me just bring you back behind the curtain here for a second. Because whenever I'm spending time like trying to figure out what in the world I'm supposed to say to you guys, what in the world the, the, the Lord is leading me to talk about, there's moments where the decision has to be made for me if I want to include stuff like this or not, the difficult stuff between like the NIV says it this way, the Common English Bible says it this way, the New Revised Standard says it this way. From the very beginning of TRP, we have stood on the principle that we will be open and honest and forthright because I'm convinced that at any given moment, there are people in the seats, even maybe even right now, who have lost trust in the Bible, who have lost trust in pastors, who have glossed over difficulties. And this is not who we want to be. We would rather open it up and say in light of it, we still have a God who is worthy to be served. 
We still have a story of redemption that is worthy to be celebrated. And we still have a Bible that is worthy to be read and studied with every little bit of intellectual ability that we have through the power of God's spirit. Okay, so it is the best translation, I would say, to read it as God talking specifically to the priest, because later on in verse six, it says this, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge since you have rejected knowledge. So I will reject you from serving me as a priest. It seems as though this, um, this reeve, this accusation is God speaking against the priests, the religious leaders who are failing the people consistently by not showing them a better way. The reason why these people are not faithful, the reason why these people don't have steadfast love, the reason why these people don't have an acknowledgement of God is because the priests are failing in regard to the people. There's a nice little turn of phrase here where it says, since you have rejected knowledge, I'm going to reject you from serving me as priest. Since you have forgotten the instruction, literally it's the Torah of your God, so I will also forget your children. This is an accusation amongst the religious leaders at the time, that they are not doing their job. And as I'm preparing this little section, guess who's on the blocks? We all have a, a job in God's kingdom. And as a good Baptist church, we believe in the priesthood of all the saints and you are all doing work. But in this moment, it seems that the accusation is against the formal religious leaders, the priests who are not serving the people in the right way. They are not giving them the knowledge that they need to acknowledge who God is. It says the more that they increase, the more that the priests increase. That should be something that helps the people, but it actually says the more that these priests show up, the more that the people sin. They exchange their glory for shame. They feed on the sin of my people. Underlying this is perhaps this idea that when people come into the sanctuary in the ancient Near East, they bring their sacrifice. The priest gets a cut of that. The priest gets to eat some of that. Some of that is devoted to God and it's given over as a whole burned sacrifice, but some parts of it are left for the priests to eat. And some folks are saying that the priests in this moment are telling people, listen, Amanda, you need to come in. You need to bring that sin offering. Josh, you too. Vicki, I don't know what you're all about bringing that sin offering just so that person can eat more food. You know what I mean? They're abusing the system, trying to get more people to come in and, 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 uh, confess their sins so that they can partake. It says that they are feeding on the sin of God's people and they set their hearts on evil things. And then it's going to turn and get weird. The priests will be just like the people. I will punish them for their ways. Verse 10, they will eat, but not be satisfied. They will have sex like prostitutes, but they will not have children because they have rejected the Lord to devote themselves to false religious practices. Another translation would be that they have devoted themselves to harlotry because in this religious system, System. Sex is involved. There's like some fertility cult stuff happening. There is some syncretistic worship where they're bringing in these elements and the priests are perhaps abusing the people in this system for their own gains. We could pause there for a moment to at least reflect on, and this is something I've been thinking about all week. In light of the difficulties of this passage and the way that the priests were letting down their communities, what is it that you are expecting from your pastors 
and from your religious mentors, spiritual advisors, whatever you want to refer to them as, what are the things that you are expecting from them? And are they living up to that? Because I think it's important, at least in this passage, Hosea is, is putting these people out there and, and calling them to task, saying, listen, you guys are dropping the ball. And the only way that I can see that happening for us is if you people are, I'm going to get a little bit selfish here for a moment, are consistently in prayer for your religious leaders, but then also able to have conversations with us when you see things that are happening that seem to be rubbing you the wrong way that seem to be going in a direction where God is not wanting me or us or all of TRP to go. I'm hopeful that we can have those honest and, and open conversations where we're able to see the role of our religious leaders, whether they're in-house or out of house, and to note that they have influence in our lives and that they should be held accountable. The third section. The results of this, the results of the atrocities from the priests, says, my people take advice from a piece of wood and their divining rod gives them predictions. A spirit of prostitution has led them astray. This is one of Hosea's most important phrases here, the spirit of prostitution that is leading the people away from serving God. They have left God to follow other gods. It says, I want you to take note of some of the language here. They're taking advice from a piece of wood, we would usually probably think of that as, oh, they've carved up some images, they've car carved up some, some gods, and they're worshiping those gods. They have a divining rod, whatever that means. Remember last week we talked about uh, them casting dice in, in order to get uh, spiritual advice or answers to their questions. This is sort of that, that thing where you have a rod of divination where you can ask it a yes or no question and whatever way that it goes, it will help you to discern what you're supposed to do. Um, but here we have these, these introductions of, of wood and a divining rod. It says they offer sacrifices on mountaintops and make entirely burned offerings on hills. They offer sacrifices under various green trees because their shade is pleasant. We've got a real emphasis on high places and trees. Now just stick with me here for a moment. Because when we are reading the Bible, more often than not, we will read what's on the page and say, hmm, that's weird. And then we'll keep going. True? That's, that's usually the approach that we take. But underneath of this is a massive, massive teaching within the Old Testament referring to on every high hill and under every green tree. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Get ready because I'm going to throw some text at you. This is 1 Kings chapter 14. Judah did evil in the Lord's eyes. The sins they committed made the Lord angrier than anything their ancestors had done. They also built shrines. They built standing stones and they built sacred poles. Sacred poles is really important. In the Hebrew, this is the Asherim. Say Asherim. It feels good, doesn't it? Okay, so you got the sacred poles on top of every high hill and under every green tree. 2 Kings 16, Ahaz also sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines on every hill and beneath every shady 
tree. 2 Kings 17, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that weren't right. They built shrines in all of their towns from watchtowers to fortified cities. They set up sacred pillars and sacred poles, Asherim on every high hill and beneath every green tree. Long ago, Jeremiah says, I broke your yoke. I shattered your chains. But even then you said, I won't serve you on every high hill and under every lush tree. You have acted like a prostitute. Jeremiah 3, during the rule of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you noticed what unfaithful Israel has done? She's gone about looking for lovers on top of every high hill and under every lush tree. Ezekiel 6, they will know that I am the Lord when their slain appear among their idols and around their altars, wherever they offered up pleasing aromas for all of their idols. That means that wherever they've sacrificed to their idols, on every high hill and mountaintop and under every lofty tree and leafy oak, Last one, Deuteronomy, in the law code, you must completely destroy every place where the nations that you are displacing worship their gods, whether on every high mountain or hills or under leafy green trees, rip down their altars, shatter their sacred stones, burn their asherim with fire, hack their gods' idols into pieces, wipe out their names from that place on every high hill and under every leafy green tree people were worshiping false gods and we see that same sort of thing happening in the book of Hosea and some scholars have have pieced things together the sacred poles that keep showing up the high places and under the trees, they seem to be connecting these dots. And one scholar says, why the biblical writer's obsession with trees? It seems pretty obvious. A luxuriant green tree represents the goddess Asherah. Remember the, the Asherah poles who gives life in a barren land and on the ridges and hilltops where one seems closer to the gods and can lift up one's eyes to the heavens. The trees and groups of wooden poles erected to her added to the verdant setting and the ambience of luxuriousness of plenty. My people take advice from a piece of wood and their divining rod gives them predictions. They offer sacrifices on mountaintops and make entirely burned offerings on hills. They offer sacrifices under various green trees because their shade is pleasant. In Hosea, what the people seem to be doing is offering sacrifices, worshiping foreign gods in these places that have been devoted to their worship for some time. That in the book of Deuteronomy, it says you must tear them down and they don't. And the fact that they are still there demonstrates that these people are going after foreign gods. Last thought about this, because I think it's really interesting and important. He says, therefore, your daughters act like prostitutes. Remember, because at these shrines and at these places of worship, there's a sexual component. This is a fertility cult. There's, there's people that have given themselves in order to act out the impregnation of the of the land by Baal your daughters act like prostitutes and your daughters-in-law commit adultery but I will not punish your daughters because they act like prostitutes nor your daughters-in-law because they commit adultery instead it's the men who themselves visit prostitutes and offer sacrifices with consecrated workers at the temple in other words what God seems to be saying is men step up to the plate Stop doing what you're doing and let's take care of this thing that's running rampant within the people. This is a really uh, 
progressive, I think, teaching for an Old Testament text, instead of just throwing the women under the bus, what God is saying is, men, you need to change this because you're the ones that are going to these shrines and having sex with these people, and that's not appropriate for my, my, my people. Anyone who's following me, stop what you're doing. I don't want to connect dots for you this evening, but I think that if you allow yourself to go there, we can connect some of those dots, perhaps in the way that men might uh, live out their lives, putting the onus on men to be folks who make the right decisions for the sake of uh, the people that they are abusing, whether literally or uh, metaphorically. This is track one of Hosea's mixtape. There's a lot of junk that's happened here tonight. There's a lot of stuff. There's, there's three different components of what's going on. We've seen how Israel has gone after other gods. We've seen how Israel has no faithfulness. They have no devotion. They have no covenant love. They have no knowledge of God. We've seen how the religious leaders are leading them all astray. And there's one turn that I think that we can make here at the end that has more points of application for us. And again, I apologize. There's lots of words on the screen. And if that really offends you, just look up and admire the architecture or uh, the pipe organ over there. Count how many pipes there are. As I read to you from this, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says, Israel in its worship of the fertility gods and goddesses is captive to a spirit of harlotry. That is the major theme of this oracle, and it's a theme that Hosea will develop further in chapter 5. The Israelites are unable to repent and mend their ways. They cannot relinquish their worship of the Baals, the foreign gods, and obey the covenant commandments of their God. They are slaves of their sin, and unless God does away with the Baals and gives the Israelites a new nature, they cannot reform. Hear this. What people cannot do for themselves, God must do for them. For us in this moment, we can look back at this text and we can see similarities between these people because we might not be going after the Asherah poles. We might not be committing goddess worship, but there are things in our lives that we worship that take us away from who God is, sex, money, power, um, status. We have these things that we go after that we put God on the back burner for and in that sense, we are really no different from these people. We also have difficulties with religious leaders, whether they be here in-house or whether they be on a national scale. There's news all over the place, unfortunately, about the atrocities that take place in the church, whether that be the Roman Catholic Church or the Evangelical Church. No one seems to be um, left out of this problem where people in authority are lording it over others and attempting to get rich or to get status or to get power and they're feeding off of the people, as we have seen in this text. There are similarities between us and between them, but there is one notable dissimilarity for us as the people. We're hearing for the Old Testament audience what these people were unable to do, God must do for them. We, friends, because of Jesus, because of how he has entered into this world and sacrificed himself for us, because we are able to follow him. We are no longer slaves. We are able to think through our relation to some of these issues, whether they be idolatry or whether they be the things that we go after that take us away from the worship of God. And because we have the spirit of the risen Christ abiding within us, we have the power to move in a direction that will take us back to where God wants us to be. And for us in the room tonight, it's easy to sing it. We're no longer slaves. 
It's more difficult to live it. It's more difficult to be committed to it. It's more difficult to identify the ways in which we are still enslaved. And my hope tonight is that even just through this text, as we have glossed just the surface of what's going on in the book of Hosea, to ask ourselves the difficult questions. Are we the type of people that are demonstrating no commitment, no steadfast love, and no acknowledgement of God? Or are we the people that are moving in the right direction, that are no longer slaves to sin, but are living in the glorious freedom that Jesus allows us to have and to experience? And can we move in such a way that we bring people along with us, righting the wrongs of this world, seeing the injustices that are taking place and stepping up and saying no to them as we attempt to live out what it means to follow Jesus for the sake of our fellow human beings? Are we able to forgive the people that have hurt us in the past and move beyond that? Are we able to see that God has worth that is invested in us? Are we able to see that we can be used mightily for him in whatever situation that we are placed in? Are we able to see that we can move in a different direction for the sake of God's kingdom? My hope tonight is that we continue to hear that call that we continue to hear that word that Jesus, in the same way that Hosea goes back for his wife, even when she has wronged him and brings her home in an attempt to reconcile a broken marriage, Jesus also wants to bring us home and reconcile the relationship that he has with us. And I hope that tonight, if you're not there, you'll begin to take steps. And I hope that tonight, if you are there, and you've lost your way, you'll get back on track and begin to walk through the power of the Spirit that's working in and through us. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.